0: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so excited that you're joining us today. Today I'm joined by Dr. Jonathan Gardner and John and I are going to be discussing physical therapy considerations in basketball players. This works out really well since John is a performance physical therapist working with the Charlotte Hornets NBA team, so he has a ton of knowledge and experience and insight in working with high-level basketball players, I know you're going to love this episode, and make sure to check out John on Instagram for more. John, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on today, man. Thanks for your time.
1: Yeah, man. Pop, we could we could get this going. We were trying for a couple of weeks. So I appreciate you working with our crazy schedules.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. So, for people who you know aren't familiar with you and you know what your crazy schedule would entail working for the Charlotte Hornets, would you mind? Filling them in a little bit about who you are and what you do.
1: Name's name is Jonathan Gardner. I go by John, I'm often not. Just don't tell my mom that. Um, I'm a sports physical therapist, training, and conditioning specialist. Uh, I was previously in the private sector world. I'm in like the DC, Baltimore area with a couple of different companies coming out of school. Uh, I was up there for about four or five years and then uh, always knew I kind of wanted to hop into the professional sports world or whatever. So, you know, just Constant networking, honing the skills, all that good stuff, meeting the right people, and and managed to, you know, receive the opportunity to work for the Hornets. So this is my first year with them, um, and it's it's been everything I can think of. So again, I've been here this year, and first season, and it's it's got its pluses and minuses compared to private practice, but overall, I mean, I'm, I'm just loving it, thrilled with the with the opportunity and career.
0: Change. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome and that's an incredible opportunity to be around, you know, the best of the best in the sport of basketball because I believe you are a very basketball minded individual. I think at one point you even called yourself the dunk doc or something like oh, that. Oh
1: god, I think I I never turned the nickname. So other people <laughs> other people did that back in the day when I could actually get up and, and dunk a little bit. Um but no, I played I played basketball in college. Um I had my own a share of injuries, nicks, bruises, and stuff like that. So again, went to PT route, enjoyed it, learned very early on that I was probably not going to be one of the best of the best in the pros, so I figured I'd find another way to get there. Um, and that's kind of what what drew me into this realm. And again, like even in the, the private practice, particularly when I was a true sports there in Maryland, kind of tried to hone in on on the basketball population, just so I felt like it was a little bit underserved in some of those markets compared to obviously the booming lacrosse and stuff like that. It's up in the state. So um, yeah, I've been chasing basketball rehab since I came out of school and and managed to find myself in in the realm of working with the best of the best. It's been fun.
0: Yeah, definitely. Now, I know you can't necessarily give specifics on certain players or anything like that, but in general, what would you say you typically see on the day-to-day as a PT who works with high-level basketball players? Is there any kind of specific injury you see a lot of or any kind of common aches and pains? What are you typically seeing on a day-to-day, John?
1: Right. So I'd say the majority of the time, like you're doing what we would call like performance care type stuff. So it's, it's less... True rehab type stuff. Like obviously, you've got your post ops and, and your true contact injuries and stuff like that. That that you're going through real rehab process. But more often than not, day to day basis, it's more maintenance care type stuff. Like you're you're checking every joint from toes up to the hips, um, and kind of going through that checklist with these guys looking for any change in like muscle tone, any pinching in the hips or groin or whatever the case may be. Uh, in terms of like most common injuries that you're going to find basketball-wise, if you're looking at knees and ankles, um, I know there's, there's been a ton of, of ankle sprains for some high-profile players throughout the league this year. Um, and again, like the majority of those are contacts, so and it's avoidable. It's just the nature of having these guys flying through the air and landing on somebody's foot. So I, I think I think that's probably the most prominent thing you're going to see with these guys are uh, contact ankles. And then you'll see general overuse injuries for knees, whether that's tendinopathy type stuff, whether it's chondral lesions and osteochondral defects or whatever the case may be there. And then uh, your constant like uh, niggles, we'll call them, like just tweaks through calves, hamstrings, groins, quads, hip flexors, etc. cetera. Um, but I mean, more often than not, when you're looking at injury reports, the majority of these guys are having some sort of lower extremity type thing. But I'd say definitely ankles and knees are typically what you're going to see. We don't get a whole lot of the uh, – I think it's just the nature of the sport. You're not seeing a whole lot of ACL stuff, right? But that stuff's a pretty and far between. Um, and, again, those are normally free contact injury type things. But more often than not, those ankle sprains and then just chronic overuse stuff for the knee.
0: Now, does that vary at all if you look at female basketball players or would you say it's relatively the same across the genders?
1: Um, I mean, there's there's always kind of been that trend of, of you'll see more of the, the ACL type injury across your female basketball players, for sure. It's um, certainly what I saw more of in that private practice setting um, was definitely more post-op basketball females as opposed to males. The males were more tenopathy. Um, occasionally meniscus type stuff, but the ACLs are
0: typically female. A little bit ago, you had mentioned too about how you kind of have to screen a lot of these guys from head to toe or really from hip to, you know, the foot there on a regular basis there. So walk me through what some of that stuff might look like. Are you a special test guy? Or are you just looking for changes compared to the previous day? And, you know, how do you streamline that process? Because I'd imagine you've got quite a few people to look at in a short amount of time. So how are you able to kind of get in, get the quality info that you need and get out in a, you know, decent time, I'll say.
1: Right. So, I mean, the blessing of being in this uh, setting is, I mean, I see these guys every single day, right? So again, like you've got a good idea of like previous injury history, you've got a good idea of like what their load was from the day before, whether that's practice, game, off day, what they're doing with strength and conditioning guys, et cetera. Um, so I, I think just – my staff's ability to effectively communicate that, even up to like the, the basketball skills and, and coaches, um, having them and, and knowing those sort of metrics going into the day helps you kind of streamline. Like, we, we do wellness questionnaires and stuff like that, and we you know that if they've played a certain number of minutes the day before, they're more than likely going to select the soreness level of XYZ kind of thing. So, you know, to hone in on those guys who are higher load guys, um, for sure. And then, again, a lot of it is is talking to these guys and communicating with them about what they feel and stuff like that. I think a lot of people assume that, like, I'm running the show kind of thing when in actuality it's, it's very athlete driven at least, at least with our kind of stuff. Like, these guys, they may not be able to articulate it the way you and I can just in terms of talking, like, biomechanics or anatomy or whatever the case may be. But these guys are so – I mean, they're – the highest level athletes you could possibly get. Like, they were very tuned with their bodies. So, again, like, just taking them through a general movement prep screening that involves, like, a, a squat, a orange pattern, a toe touch, et cetera, and again, like they can tell you very quickly, like, eh, like, my hip feels a little funny today. Like, my calf feels tighter as I'm, as I'm sitting into this squat or whatever the case may be. So it's, it's running through their general movement prep type stuff mm-hmm. I and mean, just doing general range of motion testing on the table kind of thing. And, again, you can hone in on guys' specific complaints that they have throughout the year and stuff like that yeah yeah
0: that's awesome and You know, as you mentioned, you certainly have the benefit of seeing them regularly. Uh, You also alluded to the collaboration between strength and conditioning and PT. And as we talked before, you know, off the podcast, I think that's really the future of good sports and performance-based physical therapy is having Mm -hmm. everyone under the same roof and working collaboratively together to improve an athlete's situation. And I also love how you mentioned the importance of what we would call, you know, the subjective report. So what the patient what the person you're working with, your client, whoever, what they're telling you, because that really, I think that makes up easily 80% of an examination of what you're going to do from there is you have to listen to what they're telling you. And you have to kind of ask yourself, does what they're saying match what I see? Um, And I think that's something that, you know, when we look at like schooling and that sort of thing, a lot of schools, um, at least in my own experience, they kind of I say miss the importance of that, of listening to someone and hearing about what they're feeling and what's going on. Um, Mm -hmm. They they kind of push you into a special test realm and a, you know, what you see and what you feel when in reality, you know, we kind of work for our patients. If we don't have people to treat, then, you know, we're not going to be treating anyone. So we kind of have to listen to them and cater everything we do to what they need specifically or what they feel they need.
1: Exactly, and again, like some of these guys, again, uh, I've had other people ask me, like, what do you do? What like cool like modalities and stuff do you have? And again, like we've got cold tub, hot tub, sauna, cupping, scraping, dry needling, e stem stuff, bone stimulators, what anything you can think of, we've got it, right? So, and again, like some of these guys, whether I think that's the perfect intervention for the day or not, again, if they come in, they're like, hey, my calf's really tight can we needle it today? But again, off the bat, you know that that player thinks that that intervention is going to help them. So, again, like people call it placebo, whatever you want to call it, right? Like th- there's going to be some sort of positive change just because they're they're expecting it, right? It's also allowing them to have a piece in the in the process of, of their rehab or just their general maintenance care and stuff like that. It's supposed to be like, ah, I don't think we should need it today. I think she's great. Or I think we should just stretch or I think we should just go and see the calf raise or whatever the case may be, right? Like, I think letting these guys have a seat at the table in terms of how their, their rehab and the maintenance care throughout the season goes, it gets you buy-in and stuff like that. But again, like going back to what I said initially, these guys are super in tune with their bodies. So, again, if they, if they think this intervention's given them a reason to past, then they'll probably go with it.
0: Now, I'm sure out of all those modalities you mentioned, I'm sure the first one you usually reach for is the ultrasound, right? Nah, we don't even have that. So that's, that's in the closet somewhere. Yeah, don't have have we don't even have one. Um, <laughs> we, we left that 30, 40 years in the past. So you mentioned before, too, you see a lot of tendinopathy type of sure. issues, whether it be patellar tendinopathy, Achilles tendinopathy, whatever. Uh, how do you like to go about treating those and managing those in basketball players?
1: Right. So I think the biggest thing is it's always a, it's a load management issue and I know that word gets tossed around especially in the NBA a lot but again it's for whatever reason that tendon complex it, it's become overloaded by too much work or an unexpected spike in load kind of thing so um, I think the, the first thing that we're typically doing is you, is you got to get that stuff to calm down so again it's, it's removing that load um, and going after some lower hanging fruit just in terms of of ways to properly load that structure without for lack of a better word pissing it off kind of thing so i think uh, early on isometric work is an easy like ground level kind of thing like it's it's low hanging fruit i know i'm getting targeted load through these tissues whether it's a, a calf for the achilles and quad or the for the knee or, or whatever the case may be so i think that's that's typically where i'm going first and again like at least in my level these guys are high level movers um, freak athletes and stuff like that so you've got to be really careful to not let them compensate their ways out of loading that tissue because again you're going to get a huge nervous system response to avoid loading that tissue and again like these guys have unbelievable strength and elasticity in other places that they can use to kind of hide that deficit. So if, if we're talking about quad or patellar tendonopathy kind of thing, they just won't load their quad. They'll load again. They've got super long femurs, so they're they're probably more hingy anyway as opposed to squatty. So they're not going to get a whole lot of load through that that knee extensor complex in general. Um, so it's it's seeing that and it's being able to take them out and, and provide enough constraints to truly get load through that knee extensor mechanism, as opposed to sitting there and be like, okay, like we're going to squat today and you think you're getting a ton of load to the quad, and in actuality they're, they're shifting everything away from it they're load all close to your chain and you're wondering why it's not getting better or tolerating load kind of thing. So again, for me, sit somebody in a knee extension machine and just have them sit there and push, they can't use their glute, they can't use their hamstring, they can't use their low back, right? They can only use quads. So I think that's why Going to some of these like single joint, isolated isometric type things are are so beneficial early on um, just to get load to the tissue that you want.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you there. And um, you know I think ISO loading is certainly a phenomenal intervention, especially early on in the rehab process because there's a fair amount of research coming out that shows it helps to modulate pain. So it's like, if I can get the same effect of a modality through exercise, then I'm already bought in. And, you know, the more we look at things from a research standpoint, the more it seems to point to total time under tension being important for tendon loading. It's not the eccentric only phase or anything like that. It's the total time. So if I can push someone into a 30, 60, even 90 second isometric hold and get the loading that I want out of it, and I'm killing their pain then I'm happy with that. And I love how you brought up the uh, leg extension machine mm-hmm. ISO hold. I've even used just a ball at a wall and having people kick yep. into that if that's not available and then progressing it into different lunge variations once you're ready to go back to standing. Um, and sure. even being multi-planar with it is doing like a lateral lunge where you kind of sink into that knee over toe position and hold there and just kind of break out of the monotony of forward and backwards sometimes. Yeah. Now you also mentioned about the shifting into a posterior um, hip kind of approach there to avoid a patellar tendon load as like a compensation. Um, sure. Have you ever seen any kind of tendinopathy type stuff up in the hip at all, like a glute or hamstring or that sort of thing?
1: I mean, you'll see you'll see some glute tendon irritation type stuff. Again, some of it's a just a general lack of mobility. These guys are occasionally wound pretty tight and again like that's that's probably what gives them their inherent spring and explosiveness and stuff like that i I wouldn't say we see a ton of it you'll see more irritation like again it's 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 that quick change in in load profile kind of thing so again like if if they've had time off over the summer and we're coming pre-season and all of a sudden we're adding in like some of this heavier load through like lateral hip or posterior chain type stuff you'll you'll occasionally see a little flare-up. But again, I think it's been a blessing having the the strength staff that we do. Uh, Just being able to progressively load these guys as opposed to just coming back and going 100 miles an hour has has avoided us dealing with a whole lot of that (laughs) like gluten on type stuff that you'll occasionally see. So uh, don't see it too too much.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, that's great. And, um, you know, is there anything that you've found from your experience thus far to help mitigate the return to sport or transition in sports sort of thing like you just outlined so you mentioned about you know having a slow ramp up instead of just jumping right sure. into things is there anything that you've found in your experience thus far that's kind of helped that outside of just kind of collaborating with the strength coaches and uh, sure
1: progress- so, I mean, we also have we have sports science department here as well and again like Dan Taylor is our, our guy for that. He's been incredible kind of stuff. And again, like that's going, I mean, I could, wellness questionnaire is a daily thing. We do saliva testing to look at inflammatory markers and, and cortisol response kind of stuff to load travel and all that kind of stuff. We do force plate jumps. Um, and there's a ton of other force plate tests that we'll do. So you'll do, I mean, we call it sway tests. So again, your ankle sprain. First thing that we're going to check is their sway test and force plate, just to see what single leg stability looks like. Um, and again, once that kind of evens out and, and gets into the proper percentile range of, of the opposite non-involved leg, then you progress that to a double leg drop into a single leg land and hold, and then typically you're progressing them back into a kind of jump kind of stuff. In terms of the on-court stuff, again, just the coaching staff that we have here is they are fantastic listeners, and again, the majority of these guys have played as well, so they have a good idea of, of what a normal progression would look like and stuff like that, so then they're very receptive to us being like, okay, this is this person, this, is this guy's first day back on the floor doing skill work post ankle sprain. We're going to limit time on feet to this. We're going to limit number of jumps to this, and we're going to keep them moving just in a sad little point of the day. kind of things so just forward backwards, whatever the case may be. And then We'll look at on data, like GPS-type stuff. Um, that'll look at number of XLD cells, jumps, distance covered, time on feet, number of exertions, and stuff like that, in terms of low-intensity to high-intensity. And again, you're, you're trying to reverse-engineer that data from a guy's peak game data, like the this peak speed, they'll hit, the peak number of acceler- acceleration, decelerations so they'll get and you're working backwards, so you're starting at like 25% load, that goes well, you bump into 50, that works well, you're bumping into 75, and again, bringing it holistically, you've got the player giving you their subjective report every single day, you're getting their wellness stuff, you've got the metrics for um, dynamoders, fourth plates, and the Kinexon data, and you're just kind of bringing that all full circle, and putting it together in terms of like that return-to-play process kind of thing.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's a great way to approach it. Say you're someone like me who's in the private sector and unfortunately sure. I have I have access to a lot of cool stuff but I don't have everything that you just outlined. Um, sure. I can't get lab work and I can't get um you know a lot of the force plate type stuff data wise on these athletes. So, how would you approach something similar from a private sector standpoint maybe if you don't have
1: access to all of that? Sure. So, I think I think video capture type stuff with, with some of these more sport specific movement kind of things. Um, Again, like even in your setting, like I think that subjective report from a patient is, is huge, right? Like I, I typically tell guys and even back when I was in private practice as well, like we're looking for like that 24 hour pain response kind of thing, right? Like if it blows up and it gets agitated, I mean, you're talking whether it's an ACL repair. or, a gluten off the posterior tip, and off the ankle sprain, whatever the case may be, right? If they're, if they're coming in the next day or they're waking up the next day, blown up, then we did too much. If they're waking up the next day, minorly sore through some of those targeted areas that we kind of loaded, then we're probably trending in the right direction kind of thing. So I think taking that 24 hour pain response has always been key for me. And then going through their subjects before and I know hop testing is is a hot topic now kind of thing. Like people hate it, people love it, whatever the case might be. Like I think as long as you are measuring something and have a rationale behind why you're measuring it, why you're using it, and you're seeing that your progressive rehab is is improving some of these metrics that you're looking for, then then you're typically in the right spot as long as it's coinciding with with the patient, the athlete telling you, like, yeah, like, I'm feeling better, I'm feeling like I could do more, et cetera. And again, just giving them, like, if you've got a basketball player and they're coming off of whatever the injury may be, it's it's figuring out, okay, what would a normal day look like for you? Like, let's say we weren't hurt, what would you normally be doing? Okay, well, let's cut that in half. So, again, if they would go work out for an hour, it's like we're going to go do 30 minutes of shooting, come back in the next day, let me know how you feel, Kind of thing, and again, you're you're monitoring swelling, um, strength, hop testing, whatever the case may be. You're just making sure that everything's trending in the right direction.
0: I've never even thought about just taking a picture of their whole day and kind of mitigating load through that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in the past, I've always like I've worked with golfers and we just kind of reset everything down to wedges and then progress up. I've worked across sure. athletes where we just kind of, you know, m- mitigate how many shots they're taking a day or, you right. know, with baseball, it's easy to kind of do like a pitch count or a swing count. Um, I've never thought about doing it like you just outlined in basketball and saying, like, look, let's just look at the time that you're doing it. Like if you're mm-hmm. on the court for an hour let's just reduce that and see what happens um, because as you mentioned before a lot of the common aches pains and injuries you see are overuse and load management related so mm-hmm. if we reduce the load temporarily but you still get to play your sport that's a lot better than not playing the sport at all and having to sit out for weeks or longer
1: right and I think that's that's always that's the biggest thing at least in the league year, right is the end goal is these guys playing. right? I know, I know basketball players in particular get a bad draft and not want to lift and stuff like that, but at the end of the day, like I would rather that guy get targeted load through tissues via skill work kind of stuff as his main portion of his rehab over coming in and, and doing an hour of session of PT or an hour of session of strength, because again, the end goal is is to be on the board playing and participating and stuff like that. So I think it's not, not belittling what we do, but again, like keeping in mind that there is an end goal there to be on the court. It's not to be on the treatment table or the leg extension machine or, or whatever the case may be. Right. So it's, it's making sure to prioritize supporting and basketball is the, is the bigger piece of the pie kind of stuff. And it's, it's using our knowledge and expertise to kind of work around that and provide provide the stimulus or the recovery or whatever the case may be that these guys need in conjunction with the sport
0: exactly yeah i mean regardless of what level you're at high school college nba the sport is the investment right so you've put some kind of time effort energy finances whatever into the sport that you play in this case basketball so our role should be to protect your investment and keep you in there as long as possible And, you know, I even tell a lot of my patients who are post-op ACL, you know, we could keep you in PT forever and probably reduce the risk of this happening for, you know, quite a long time. But if we do that, then that kind of defeats the purpose. The whole goal is to get you out of here and get you back to doing the things that you want to do day in and day out as you were before or better than you were before. Um, so I, I think that's a uh, important conversation to have of you know, the importance of what you're doing and why you're doing what you're doing. Because right. we, it would be great if I could work with every athlete and try and make them a great lifter. I would love if I could make athletes sure. work until they front squat 315, but that's not what they want. That's not what they need, and that's not exactly. why they're here. Um I love that conversation. Switching gears a little bit here, John we missed the ankle when we were talking before walk me through some of those low and high ankle sprains that you see and walk me through some of the Achilles tendinopathy type management that you have too.
1: Sure. So, I mean, you're not typically going to get a whole lot of high ankle stuff. Uh, it's typically your lateral ankle sprain. And again, more often than not, these are contact injuries. Like these are guys laying on people's feet, right? Again, there's some big feet rolling around through here too. So again, it's, it's hard, it's hard to avoid sometimes. Um, so, again, we're, we're dealing with mostly, I'd say, the majority of basketball players are suffering lateral language sprains and stuff like that. I mean, it's it's the same sort of thing, right? Like, we're starting off with swelling management and stuff like that. And, again, like I think that's been one of the bigger perks of, of getting into this job as I now get to work alongside athletic trainers on a daily basis. And that's their wheelhouse, so again, like, Swelling management, edema management via dry needling, compression, icing, contrast uh, wraps, et cetera. Like, having the chance to learn some of that stuff's been, been pretty cool. Uh, again, we've got an incredible staff of athletic trainers that, that have been able to show me the ropes with, with that kind of stuff. Because, again, like I think, you know, icing become another hot topic in the rehab world. It's like, oh, we shouldn't ice, yada, yada. Well, these guys feel way better when they ice, so probably. <laughs> Ice, right, that shouldn't be your, your end all be all, but again, it's, it's been huge to kind of go full circle on that. Coming from the like clinic, that again, we touted that we didn't do modalities to again, knowing the proper time and place for when to use that stuff. So, acute wise, again, you're just managing swelling and stuff like that, and you're, you're trying to restore joint motion ASAP, right? So, again, whether that's manual stuff, whether that's getting these guys in and moving them through different ranges of motion, motion making sure that we're maintaining dorsiflexion and that sort of stuff is, is key early on. Um, and then again, like we we have the luxury of having a dynamo, right? So I, I can use that kind of stuff to get inversion, eversion, dorsiflexion, strength numbers, kind of stuff. And again, comparing it to the opposite side. And again, we're starting same sort of thing getting load through those tissues typically the isometric type stuff like your classic four-way angle but again it's, it's done with the with the intent of moving these metrics so that we can get them back up on their feet and again start doing singular balance and stuff like that
0: yeah yeah i love that and i completely completely echo your point on the ice john is even in the post-op patients right like you know some of the best surgeons in the country are telling their patients look you gotta ice because If you try and load and move a knee that's swollen, or in this case, an ankle that's swollen and irritated, it's not going to feel good. So if we do something to help reduce the swelling, it's probably going to feel better and move better. Um, And, you know, like you mentioned, ice is a hot topic. Compression and elevation is also, you know, hot topics like, oh, well, it doesn't do anything. And it's like, well, it controls swelling. And if we control swelling, that does quite a bit for us, actually. Yes. Um, So I think that's huge there. I also love how you kind of brought in the AT side of things as well, because I think that, you know, a lot of times as practitioners, we tend to get very narrow minded and think that we have to do everything ourselves, when in reality, Mm -hmm. it takes a village, as you've kind of mentioned throughout this, it takes the coaches, the strength coaches, the ATs, the PTs, everyone coming together in order to get someone better. And that's the best results. So, you know, say you're like me and you're in the private practice realm, it might not hurt to get consent from the patient to email their coaches or their strength coaches or their AT at school or whatever that way, and try and just kind of bridge that gap and collaborate a little bit more because that's going to give best outcome from the athlete. And oh, by the way, if their AT is managing swelling and edema for you, then you could probably do a little bit more in PT with them. And, you know, another regard there, Um, I also love how you brought up even the importance of something like a four-way ankle exercise. I think in general, Mm -hmm. sports PT um, and basketball certainly falls into this, has become this thing that people feel has to be glamorized by cool exercises that show up on Instagram, where in reality, sometimes it's the basic things done really well that get them where they need to be. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm guilty of it myself. I'll post some cool exercises on Instagram every now and sure. then. But, you know, how often do we see a post-op ACL patient posting their quad sets and their straight leg raises or, right. uh, you right. know, a um, a high ankle sprain patient who's, you know, posting their initial ankle four-way or ankle pumps or something like that. Right. Like, that's the stuff that I think often gets overlooked and yet has such an essential part of the rehab process. And I think, you know, if that's missed, you're not going to get them back to all the cool fancy stuff. Like how are you going to get someone back to jumping or dunking a basketball if they can't even control ankle dorsiflexion, plantar flexion and open chain?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And again, like, I think that's, it even goes back to what we are talking about with tendinopathy, like the same sort of thing. Like you've got to make sure that you're getting load through tissue that you're targeting, right? And again, like that more often than not is going to start off with single joint, isolated movements. It's not going to be this crazy, banded, twisted around this way, controlling trunk and stuff like that. Because again, your nervous system is going to avoid loading that stuff because it hurts or whatever the case may be, right? It's going to find a different strategy to kind of do that stuff. So again, the more you take that opportunity for that load to go elsewhere, and you make sure that it's focused in an ankle, a knee, a hip, a groin, whatever the case may be, I think the more success you're going to have early on. So again, like my early ankle stuff, like it's it's heavy, almost max effort, isometrics, four-way angle type stuff, to again, like I know that these guys are going to feel I know they're gonna feel post tip, and then they're gonna feel calf, and they're gonna feel anterior tip type stuff. So again, and once you can kind of build that resiliency in that tissue, and again, isometric wise, you'll get some of that pain mitigation, emoji effect type stuff. You'll typically find that these guys can get up and do a little bit more after you've kind of prepped those tissues and loaded it and kind of changed that nervous system response to it being
0: yeah, definitely. How are you doing the four-way ankle isos? Are you using like a wall or a ball or are you using a band and just kind of doing like a holding isometric against the band? Or how do you like to load that kind of pattern? Sure.
1: So, I mean, early on, I'm doing hand pressure. And again, like I'm setting my hand on lateral aspect, of but uh, anterior aspect of foot, me wherever I'm putting it. And I'm having them push me. Because again, I can mitigate the amount of force that I put into them, and then they get the chance to. Again, you're giving them control of the session, right? Like you get to figure out how hard you can push into e version kind of stuff to load those peronials. And again, like you said earlier, you get that analgesic effect, you get and calm down. It's like, oh, my ankle's not going to explode I'm pushing this way. I'll push a little harder. Okay, I'll push a little harder. I'll push a little harder, and that kind of stuff. And again, I think that you give them control of the situation, but you're just making sure that, that the load's going for you. That too, kind of stuff. So that, that's typically where I'm starting. Um, and then as we have progressive, I'm taking more towards like end range kind of stuff. So like I'll do a max effort eversion, holding them in some planar flexion inversion type stuff. And I'm making them activate at length kind of stuff. So normally starting in like a general, what you call neutral position? And then gradually working towards end range kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I like that progression a lot. And I like how you kind of said, you know, you start from the basics and then progress into just basic multi-planar movement on a high level isometric, because um, I think it always surprises people with the ISO holds, how weak they actually are in certain positions like that, or how difficult it is to generate force in a certain position. Now we've talked about a few different injuries. We've talked about some great PT considerations for basketball players. From a return to sports side, say someone's been out for a period of time for mm-hmm. you know, whatever injury, what's kind of your checklist or what kind of things do you look for in order to return someone to basketball? What sort of things do you like to look at?
1: Uh, we're spoiled, right? I've got force <laughs> play and, and all that kind of stuff, right? So, again, it's it's making sure that that stuff is trending towards normal, if not better than pre-injury levels. And, again, I, I, I realize most people don't ask access to that kind of stuff so um i'm trying to think like if i'm if i'm back in the private sector how am i doing return to sport i mean again a lot of it i'm going based off what these patients telling me right i am listening to their subjective report like hey like i'm getting back on the court i'm doing this that and the third but i just don't feel it here and again it's like, real reverse engineer whatever movement or skill that is kind of in clinic kind of stuff. Or again, it's it's conversations with sports or skill coaches or whoever about like, Hey, should we get some extra reps of X, Y, Z, um, in terms of big rocks that I'm looking for. Again, the majority of, I think the majority of PT clinics now have some sort of measurable, right? Whether that's a handheld dynamometry type stuff. If it's your hot testing, whatever the case may be. Um, if it's using your phone for some sort of motion capture type stuff, whatever the case would be and and making sure that stuff's all trending in the right direction. Um, And again, like i I was always 95 plus percent limb symmetry for any sort of like true return to competition kind of thing. I think, uh, I think that's just a good, benchmark. I felt like I had good success with that kind of stuff when I was in private practice. So I mean that, that was typically what I was doing, whether that was hop testing, um, strike testing, or even just regular motion type of stuff. Like making sure that you're you're as close to the other side as possible and, and making sure that you're that the athlete's participation in sport like drills is progressing the way they want it to and they're feeling confident, I guess would be the, the better word for
0: it. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a combination of a, a few objective tests and measures mm-hmm. looking at, you know, single leg strength, maybe like a hamstring quad ratio. Yep. Um, and then the hop testing, which is obviously essential for basketball, since it's such a explosive plyometric sport in nature, For sure. um, you know, you have to jump in basketball, like there's no other way around it. Yeah. Um, and then you compare, compare that with what are you seeing and what is the athlete feeling During all that, because naturally, you know, they might jump and land and tell you they feel great, but you look at how they landed and you say, you know, that just doesn't look like what I saw before or no one else on the team lands like that. Maybe this, you know, athlete's just an anomaly or maybe there's something more to the picture here. Um, And going back to what we've talked about a few times already, just like you just mentioned, the importance of listening to the athlete, because if they're doing something for the first time again in a return to sport, and they say something doesn't feel right, they're probably right about that uh, Uh most of the time. Absolutely is there any specific interventions that you like in that phase of the rehab process? Is there anything specific that you're like, Hey, you know, this exercise or this combination of exercises really works well with basketball athletes, or is there like a certain training methodology, like a contrast approach or something like that, that you like for kind of the later stage uh, return to sport type athlete?
1: Sure. So I, I think the biggest thing for us anyway, like we're, where i'm at is, is making sure that number of accelerations and decelerations are where they were at pre-injury kind of thing and again like spoil to use connects on data and stuff like that to kind of get that stuff um but again it can even be like if you're going like, worst case scenario you have no data kind of stuff you can go time on feet with like an rpg kind of thing and again if you're like I-, I need you to go like nine out of ten effort a day for an hour with a typical workout that you would only do with your skills player, and they come back and like, no, that felt pretty good. I just feel a little weak, or I feel deconditioned, or whatever the case may be. Um, I think that's that's the biggest thing that we're looking at in terms of like training methodology. I mean, I think it's it's different for different athletes. We, we spoke to it earlier. That's guys aren't known for living in the weight room kind of thing. And these guys, again, they're anomalies in terms of anthropometric type stuff. Like they've got femurs longer than my arm. Kind of stuff. So again to sit here and be like, oh they need to squat X body weight or they need to trap more deadlift X body weight or whatever the case may be. Well those are good goals and again like we want to make these guys just competent movers in general just to so that we can target mode appropriately. Um I think even the training methodologies at least in this sector, kind of go back to what these guys feel again, like some of our higher level guys, they do a double front rack squat with with kettlebells for five reps. If it looks good and feels good, then we leave it alone kind of stuff. You just check a box to make sure these guys have the movement competency to participate in the sport at the level that they want to. And again, these guys know better than I do about what makes them successful kind of stuff. So it's, it's really letting them play a a big role in that sort of thing. Again, like we'll do some velocity based stuff. We'll do banded stuff. Uh, at the end stage, kind of thing, just to get them into more of like that explosive mindset kind of stuff, get their central nervous system turned on, etc., um, and then correlating that with with our data through force plates and uh, GPS stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I love that, John. Now I have to admit, out of all the different PTS that I've had on for different discussions on sports, whether it be lacrosse or whatever. Um, Not many have brought up the central nervous system type stuff like you have, and I'm really intrigued by that. So when you say central nervous system type stuff for, you know, for people listening and they might not understand the role that the nervous system plays in modulating pain or, you know, really in a way, at, at least the way I look at it almost all PT is neuro PT in a sense, because Perfect. you're rewiring the way the body moves or changing the way the body thinks it's moving or mm-hmm. something along those lines. So could you just elaborate a little bit more on kind of the nervous system role in PT and our overall uh, movement uh, approach, I'll say?
1: Boy, so like neuro- neuroanatomy was definitely not my favorite. Class. It was not but mine I, either. My, my <laughs> wife was probably the reason I passed that class back in school so <laughs> shout out to her um, so I'm not going to get into like descending pathway or ascending path like any I, of that kind of stuff I wouldn't so. understand any of it I'll be honest <laughs> with <you. laughs> uh, but again like pain is a it's a response from the nervous system telling your brain that like something is, is harmful kind of thing so again like early stage rehab like stuff hurts it's inflamed it's agitated whatever the case may be so it's if you can modulate pain Early on, particularly while they're under load and stuff like that, you're going to be a lot more successful. And again, it, it's recognizing that because of this pain response, the body's typically going to avoid loading whatever tissue it may be. Right. So again, like you see a lot of post-op ACL type stuff. It's that constant like hingey, Don't want to sink in the knee flexion. Knee doesn't want to go forward. They do not want to load their quad. God's forbid they had a patellar tendon or quad tendon graft kind of thing. Right, like that brain is telling that leg, like eh, it doesn't feel good when that knee goes forward. It's horrible. It's dangerous. Let's not do it, kind of stuff. So again, it's it's a it's a progressive loading into some of those ranges or into that moving pattern or whatever the case may be to build confidence. I mean, mentally and again, like you're modulating a true pain response in that area. Not to say that like they're not they don't have pain or whatever the case may be, right, to say it's all coming to their brain and it's not actually whatever the case may be, like, it hurts. So again, it's taking another word for that and showing them, again, like I've used dynamometry in the past to be like, listen, like, previously you were performing the extension at this rate, five reps into it, we got to this, right? So again, like, it's showing these guys and girls that if we load this stuff, if you allow yourself to push into some of these painful positions but in a monitored way you can get an adaptation that reduces pain and improves function kind of stuff so i think that's kind of how i do like the the nervous system part of it kind of thing um and again especially like when i'm talking like central nervous system stuff like it's the the high rate high loading kind of thing like where I don't want these guys thinking about necessarily like okay like my knees needs to track over my second toe while I'm performing this kind of stuff. Again it's it's like rate coding type stuff. Like I need these guys to move quick. And again, especially like if it's been a long rehab process, they haven't done that in a while. Kind of thing so it's just make sure these things are are tuned up and moving explosively and preparing them for sport. But early on it's it's that pain modulation confidence building type stuff in terms of like what I'm looking at. system
0: wise. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, kind of rewiring things. And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. Because like I said before, that's usually not something that gets brought up in the sports PT realm is the role of the nervous system. But, you know, I do think it plays a very essential role based on the latest pain science research. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm kind of like it sounds like you, I'm not necessarily the expert on how all that stuff works from a neuroanatomy standpoint. I don't know, you know, what connects to what I don't know where it crosses over in the spinal cord but um you know if you have a general understanding of it i think it can make a world of difference for you
1: absolutely absolutely so
0: john we've kind of discussed a lot of different things here relating to basketball and pt considerations for high level basketball players do you have any kind of closing thoughts closing remarks or anything that we didn't quite give enough attention that you're thinking about right now
1: not not really. I think we touched on a lot. So, again, I, I certainly appreciate the conversation for sure, the, the ability to let me kind of express what kind of circulates through my brain on a daily basis. I mean, I think the biggest takeaway, whether you were private practice, in pro sport, upcoming PT, whatever the case may be, is, is listening to these athletes, realizing that the higher the level, probably the better the compensator they are. So again, like from a rehab perspective, like you, you've got to get targeted load through, through, through tissues and it's, it's okay to go back to a basic cat phrase, a basic leg extension, a wall set, whatever the case may be. Like again, we've kind of spoken to it and I, I can admit freely that when I was in the private sports world, the glitz and glamour of Instagram posts and reels and, and getting views and stuff like that from a marketing standpoint, like, yeah, like, you want some bands so dub, you want chains here and there. You want these guys doing these crazy movements requiring all sorts of stability and stuff like that. Um uh, but basics work. That's why they've been around forever. It's why ankle rehab still starts or should start, in my opinion, four way ankle stuff. Right, as opposed to okay, let's stand up and put a band and do a big toe and balance while this band's pulling you over to your left or whatever the case might be, right? Like I think I think realizing how effective simple interventions can be along with just basic feedback from the athlete. Um, I think that's, that's more where my rehab mind is kind of shifted.
0: John, for people who want to find out more about you, maybe check you out on Instagram, that sort of thing, where can they find you at?
1: Sure. So I'm just on Instagram really. So Dr. John Gardner, 23. Um, I'm sure we can toss it in the show notes or something like that. I don't think there's a period it. Oh.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Do, obviously, we don't do as much of the rehab posting around here as I used to do back in the day kind of stuff, but I'm hoping to be a little more active there with my thoughts and stuff, especially if we kind of go into the offseason and get a little bit of a break kind of thing. So hopefully yeah. people find some useful previous content on there, and hopefully in the future I've got some some better stuff for people.
0: Yeah, definitely. We'll link to that in the uh, description below. Here, you mean to tell me you're not on like MySpace or anything, John?
1: Not a MySpace guy. Uh, <laughs> I've begrudgingly downloaded TikTok. We'll see if that becomes a thing. But as <laughs> as of right now, it's, it's it's mostly just baby videos. As my wife and I have a have nine week old, so <laughs> but that's the majority of my TikTok content for them. So if it ever transitions to a PT thing, I'll let everybody know.
0: You mean to tell me you had time. To record a podcast on top of your normal workday and having a newborn.
1: Well, I've got a superwoman for a wife, so, so <laughs> that's the only reason any of this works. So,
0: <laughs> John, always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you again for your time. Absolutely, thank you, man. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Broad Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend. Subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.